Well, good morning and uh, welcome to our service. My name is uh, Pastor Mark Hopper. As you heard last week, I'm the good-looking pastor. <laughs> well, Pastor Tim uh, graciously invited me to share this morning as he and Joanne are uh, celebrating their 25th anniversary. Isn't that something? They look far too young, so we're happy for them. Some of you have been here many, many years. What I'm going to share with you this morning is about uh, thankfulness in terms of generosity. And in many ways, I'm preaching to the choir because I know so many of you are very generous people. But there's a, a, a book in the very end of the New Testament, in Second Peter, where three or four or five times, Peter says, I know I've told you this before, but let me remind you again. And we all need that. I used to think after seminary, I had all the information I needed until a doctor told me one time at a church in Dallas that he went to a conference every year because he needed to learn more about this whole area. He was a heart specialist. And so I realized that was the case as well. So whenever you come to church or whenever you go to a seminar, work or spiritual you know, reference, I always say, look for something new, learn something new, and be reminded of things you've known in the past. Because we need those reminders. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that verse, that lesson, that passage. I want to say how thankful I am to be here with you. 35 years ago, a little family called the Hoppers packed up their, the biggest U-Haul van available truck and the biggest trailer that they had in those days. And we drove to a place called Diamond Bar, California. Started in 35 years ago. So it's been quite a journey, almost a third of, of a of, of what century here at the church. I'm thankful for the pastors who've come before me. There was Steve Campbell was the pastor prior to my coming. He had done a good job getting him onto this property and into that first building we call the landing today. And I'm thankful for Pastor Tim and for Joanne that they're carrying on the journey. It's like literally we've passed batons as this journey continues and you're very much a part of that. Certainly thankful for the staff and the volunteers. And Tim mentioned in his sermon last Sunday about faithful people. There was a man sitting in first service over here uh, by John Suzuki, but his name was Ed Shockley. And Ed is now in his 90s. We thought they were old when we got here 35 years ago. <laughs> it's true. But bless his heart, we have a building behind us off to the side that's going to get remodeled soon. It's called the Education Building, but really it's the Ed Building because he taught us how to build that building. We did it together. So many faithful people. I'm also thankful for the men in the church. I like men, and I'm glad you're here. And there's some guys around the campus, I just look for them and punch them in the arm and say, you're my hero. You men that come, we're thankful for the women that come and thankful for your great event yesterday. But, but there's something about the men that your being here gives strength to this church. Thankful for the older people too, the Join heirs downstairs and others of you that are part of this this morning, and the widows and the widowers. You know, there were three things that attracted us to Diamond Bar. The church we, I pastored in Tucson was not large, but it was larger than the church here when we came. But it was a small, faithful group of people, three Ps. It was the people, faithful people, a growing number of young families, no high school kids. And here I had high school kids. The second thing was the, the, the property, the location. Here was a building with a small amount of land, but a strategic location. And somewhere, I don't know if they teach the new member class anymore, but maybe in the rooted class, you ought to learn a little 15 minutes about how this happened. God provided this property and how he's enabled us to, to develop it as it is. But the third thing that attracted us wasn't just the people and the property, it was the potential. And that potential continues. It's just so exciting to see the church alive with lots of young families and kids and blurry-eyed looking parents trying to grow, raise these little ones and sometimes newborns. So we're very thankful for what God is doing and Tom, uh, Tim's leadership along with Joanne. But this morning, what we want to do is talk about a church that is just like this church. So you're not going to hear anything really new, but hopefully it's going to jar your thinking a little bit to consider some things when we talk about a church named Philippi. I believe it was Paul's favorite church. Let's see, did I leave anything out? I got to stick to my notes. I get lost. I believe it was Paul's favorite church. Let's start 
not in the book of Philippians, but let's start in the book of Acts. You want to turn there with me if you brought your Bible with you this morning? Acts chapter 16. Let me again underscore what you heard about the shoebox opportunity, not only for the packing, but if you want to give a special gift this day, today, uh, I know they're collecting whatever additional funds may be available to help with the filling those boxes next week. Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. We actually saw some Samaritan purse big boxes, not the individual ones, but the big shipping boxes in India. When we went to work alongside one of our missionaries outside of Hyderabad, India, on their campus, it was a, it's a boarding school, orphanage, and there were Samaritan purse boxes. I don't know if they came from Diamond Bar, but that's what your box will do. Love to see those pictures. But if you want to add a special gift today to your offering check or add something, you can pass it on to Lilia Fong out on the patio or put it in the offering box as they get ready to pack. I believe that the Philippians were Paul's favorite church. And, and it, it resonates in his letter. If you read that, joy, rejoice over and over again. Thankful for these dear people. Uh, really a thank you note in that letter. But it's fun to see why he loved Philippi. Now, take a look at Acts 16 with me. And we're going to pick it up in verse, well, let's say 9 of Acts 16. We, there was a vision. A vision appeared to Paul. This is going to be Paul's second missionary journey that he's on. And a vision appeared to Paul when they believed they were at the city of Troas, kind of on the, 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 the coast, trying to figure out which way to go. And it was a, 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 a man appeared in verse 9 from Macedonia who was standing and appealing to him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so when he, Paul, had seen that vision, catch this little subtlety, we immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding God was calling us to there. Did you catch what happened? The author, Luke, slipped from the third person, they, he, Paul, and then he said, we went to Macedonia. You could just miss it. It just slipped right by it. Now, Macedonia is in Europe. It's in Greece, the northern part of Greece. Okay, And, and Paul was in Turkey, on the coast of Turkey, or what was called Asia, one of the provinces on the west coast of Asia, uh, Turkey. So they're going to go by boat across the sea to a place called Philippi. That makes sense? Now, while they're there... Some, uh, Luke just gives us three little snapshots. Three different people's lives are touched by Paul's coming. But that's not all. It's just the Bible doesn't have room enough for everybody in all the stories. So, same with the life of Jesus. John said in John uh, 21, not enough books could hold the libraries of the world. All that Jesus did. So kind of like you're seeing if you watch the Chosen series, you're getting little snapshots. Well, here's three of them. The first one was a woman it says in uh, verse 16, uh, no, 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 let's go back. Um, verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia, oh, verse 13, outside the city, they went on a Sabbath day. There was no synagogue in Philippi, so they went to this area um, by a riverside. They were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began to speak to the women, there were more than one. A number of women had gathered there. And one of them, verse 14, was a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Tyathira. That's actually back in Asia Minor. And notice what it says about her. She was a seller of purple fabric. So she was a wealthy businesswoman. That was a very valued purple uh, cloth that they produced. And also that she was a worshiper of God. She had this open heart. She was a seeker, a God seeker, a God worshiper though she was not yet a follower of Christ. But they were there, and I love this statement in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart. That's all it takes. You and I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can open someone's heart and mind and their eyes to believe. And as a result, it says that uh, she responded to the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, so that's not all the details, but she says, if you uh, uh, judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come, you can use my home as the headquarters. So number one, we have a wealthy woman who comes to believe in Christ. Got it? Second one, if you slip down in verse 18, there was a demon-possessed woman who was harassing and, and, and irritating Paul and Silas and those on the team. And so Paul says in verse 18, 
uh, after many days, he was annoyed and turned to the spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out. And it came out. And this woman who had been making money for her, her owners, her masters, verse 19, saw that her, the potential for profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and threw him in jail. So we've got a wealthy woman who believes. We have a poor slave woman who I believe becomes a Christian through this release from the demon and embracing Christ. And then third, if you notice it down in verse, what is it, 23, 24, they had inflicted uh, uh, many blows upon Paul and Silas. They threw them into jail. Uh, they fastened them securely in the inner part of the prison, verse 24. But at midnight, this sounds a little bit like Southern California, while they were praying and singing hymns, and the prisoners were listening, I think that's so cute, that the other prisoners are wondering, what are these guys singing about? Suddenly an earthquake, verse 26, uh, occurs. So the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately the doors were open, and the, the chains were unfastened. And when the jailers was roused from his sleep, verse 27, saw the prison doors open, drew his sword, and about to take his own life. Because in Roman times, the soldiers and the jailers, if the prisoners got away, you paid with your life for their escape. And we can see the other examples in the book of Acts. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, verse 28, don't harm yourself, we're still here. He called for lights, rushed in, trembling. I love this, verse 29, fell down at Paul and Silas's feet. Probably the man who beat them now is at their feet. And I love uh, what he says. Um, verse 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I love this sentence. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved and your household. Not because he's saved that they all are, but rather each of the family members will come to faith in Christ. Now that is an evangelist dream. When people rush to you and say, what do I need to do to be saved? That's a pastor's delight. God's in the business of changing people. I want to pause here for a second. Have you come to a personal faith in Christ? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus? Many years ago, there was a family who had visited our church, and we went to visit them at their home. Their name was Bill and Colleen, and we usually brought a box of cookies and we got to know them and answered questions about our church. But then uh, we'd like to share just the brief message of the gospel that, you know, Christ, we're all sinners, but God loves us. And Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again is proof of that. And, and if we would just believe in him, we can, we, we, our lives can be transformed and promise of eternal life. Sins forgiven, eternal life. Well, when we shared that with Bill and Colleen in their home, I said, Bill, have you ever made a decision like that? No, you probably hadn't, but would you like to today? No, no, I'm not ready. I need time to think about it. That was fine. We got up to leave their living room, and Colleen says, I'm ready. I'm ready. I mean, I, I was caught by surprise. We all were caught by surprise. And we sat back down and making sure she understood this basic message that we're all sinners. Christ died for our sins and rose again. And if we put our faith, believe in him, invite him into our life, we'll know for God's forgiveness and for the promise of eternal life. She did that that night. And if you meet Bill and Colleen today, and they still live in the area, she'll tell you that story. Both of them will. But my question is, are you sure? Most of you look familiar. I, I, I'm not here to question anyone, but rather to give an invitation. If you have never come to a decision of faith in Christ, this could be your day before you leave this building. I always tell people, just pray a simple prayer. When I prayed, when I was a young man, about 14 years old, under a pine tree in Prescott, Arizona, God, I know I'm a sinner. Man, I was a teenager. All teenagers are sinners, right? <laughs> most of you in this room, most of you were teenagers. We know you. But now I understood. Christ died on the cross for me. And so that night, the best I understood, I just said, please come into my life. Forgive my sins. And make me the person you want me to be. And you know, nothing dramatic happened. No earthquake that night. But there was just a decision, a, a settled decision that I knew I had stepped across the line and become a follower of Christ. If you've never done that, don't leave today without that. There'll be some people meeting over under the cross. You could pray with them. 
And tell people, if you make that decision, don't keep it private. Share that with others. Well, we want to get to Philippians. But can we stop in one verse on the way? This is not in the notes that they have up in the, in the booth. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, by the way, did you bring your Bibles? Can I, can I preach here for a minute? You need a Bible in your hands. I know you have phones. Those are nice. I have one of those too. But, but there's something about a Bible in your hands because you can write in it. And, and we're going to give you a bunch of verses. You could write those verses near the verse we're going to study in Philippians. I'll give you three or four reasons to have a Bible. Number one, if you only use your phone, how do your kids know you're actually reading the Bible and you're not checking the, the, the football scores or checking your email? How do they know? Plus, it, it gives you a, a platform to write on and to underline. I mean, if you look at some of my old Bibles, it's amazing the things that I've written in there. Of something a pastor said or a connection between that verse and this verse. And also, and this is important, you can leave it to your kids when you're gone. I have a Bible from the 19, excuse me, 1880s. Belonged to my great-grandfather. A pretty impressive study Bible with his name on it. I have that today. What you have in your hands today could be a comfort and encouragement to your children or your grandchildren someday when you're gone. I just want to challenge you to do that. In 2 Corinthians 8, are you, on, are you with me? It's not going to be on the screen, so you have to look. I, I believe this is a reference to the people we're going to talk about. Paul says, says brethren, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 5, We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. Where is Philippi? Macedonia, northern Greece. There's also Thessalonica. There's also Berea. But here we're talking about Philippi. But he says, let me tell you, and what he's doing, the Corinthians are in the south. The Macedonians are in the north. And he's using the example of those churches in the north to kind of shame those arrogant Corinthians who were kind of high-minded and thought a lot of themselves. We could talk about that another time. But he says, I want to tell you about the churches of Macedonia who, in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, and you'll find joy in the letter to the Philippians, and their deep poverty. Listen, people, these were not wealthy people. Their deep poverty overwhelmed in the wealth of their generosity, or my Bible says liberality. For I testify to you that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave according and begging, this is so sweet, begging for the, in, with much entreaty, my Bible says, for the favor of participating in this offering that was being gathered for the saints back in Jerusalem. And not only did they do what we had expected, but first, they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. The people we're going to talk about are probably the people Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Did you catch words like poverty and, 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 and yet begging, pleading, wanting to be generous and give the little they had to help with a collection from the Greek churches to go to Jerusalem to help the Jerusalem believers who are going through a difficult time. Now, let's look at Philippians. Are you ready? We're going to flip through Philippians. But I just wanted to get a little earshot. This was not a wealthy group of people, though there was a wealthy woman, a businesswoman. But also there were people with very little and yet excited about their faith and sharing what God had given to them. I'm going to tell you three things about generosity. That's our topic this morning. Number one, the essential ingredients, in my opinion, of generosity. We're going to see them in Philippians 4. Number one is to be content. We're going to talk about that. Number two is to be consistent. And number three is to be confident. So if you don't hear anything else, you can fill in the blanks. But do you hear those three? That we should be content. We need to be content if we're going to be generous. We need to be consistent, not haphazard. It needs to be part of our lifestyle. And we need to be confident that when we are generous, God delights to bless us. And it's not a because of, but rather that's his very nature. And that's what these people experience. 
So we're going to pick it up in Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 10. We'll put it on the screen for you and read down through 13. They enlarged the type for me. These guys can do anything. Thank you up there, guys and gals. Paul wrote to the Philippians. He says, um, be cont- uh, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at last you have revived your concern for me. For indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I, not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be, here's our word. What's the word? Content. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with little, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. It's interesting, it's something you learn. It doesn't come naturally. Yeah, I learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need for in all things, through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. The philosophy, the principle is contentment. It is a word that does not really even fit in our conversations today. There's something about, um, oh, what's the right word for us? When we have this free market, when we, we have the freedom of choice and all these things, by nature, we're selfish people. And we always want more. We always want more. Let me stick to my notes. This thing of contentment, Charles Ryrie wrote, comes from our inner satisfaction in the situation we're in. It means to have the settledness, not to be agitated and irritated that we're missing out or we don't have enough or we want more, but it's just a settledness of heart and mind. I wrote down it's the opposite of the world we live in. Media and advertising are designed to make us feel discontented. Isn't that true? Have you been to a store lately? They have new clothes, new colors. Do you know the colors change? I didn't know that. I just thought this was okay all year long. Now there's something about you don't wear white after this, or you're supposed to wear darker colors and this. Who made up those rules? Fashion designers, right? Uh, What else are we doing that's been funny? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I don't know where this happened, but men stopped tucking in their shirts. Have you noticed that? I think I'm the only guy in the room with my shirt tucked in now. I don't get it. But it, it's, this is the way it's supposed to be. You've been misled into some other fashion. I'll tell you what else. Model homes make our houses look old and outdated. Don't go to model homes. Because it looks so nice. And it's, it's just, it, we, it breeds dissatisfaction. Oh, our carpet looks older. Our, our paint is dated. And, and isn't that true? You feel discontented. Stores. Have you ever been to Home Goods? Don't raise your hands. I have a wonderful wife. I, I, I hope uh, Susan has, God has brought us together in this season, having both of us lost our spouses. And, and we talk about our spouse. We knew each other's spouses. I mean, it, it's, it's this remarkable thing. And yet we look at each other once in a while and just amazed at how blessed we are. I'm thankful for that. But we went to Home Goods one day. How many men do you think were in Home Goods? It, I think, besides me, there were two other guys, three men in home goods. I think there had to be 30 or 40 women in home goods. The line was just, the, the checkout line, ridiculous. See, they just breed this, well, here's something new. Here's something cute. Here's some, oh, look at this. Oh, down. And just, women just do this. I don't know why. We always, I wrote this in my notes, we are selfish by nature. I'm not saying shopping at home goods is bad, but, but somewhere there's this level of, of contentment and we don't need everything new. Where I wrote my notes, we're never satisfied. We want newer, we want bigger, we want better. And I'm convinced what Paul is saying here is that contentment is the key to generosity, to be content. I want you to see some other verses just to support this and If we had time, we'd flip back and forth, but we'll put them on the screen. But I think it starts with Luke chapter 3. Is that right? Some soldiers came not to Jesus, but to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. And the soldiers said to him, well, what we need to do. They came out of hopefully repentance of the way they've been living. And here's what John the Baptist said. uh, Do not extort money from anyone 
or, or harass anyone, but be content with your wages. Isn't that something? Has anybody in this room heard anybody say, oh, I get paid more than I should. Oh, no, no. We don't need a raise. Second verse. This is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, Godliness uh, actually is a means of great gain when, uh, uh, when accompanied by what? Come on, come on. Contentment. Let's say the word. You need to hear it. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering and a few things from home goods, <laughs> with these we should be what? Content. One more verse. Am I going to convince you here or what? Make sure, Hebrews chapter 13, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being what? Content with what you have. For he, the Lord himself, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. That's the principle. Paul said he could be satisfied with a lot or little. I'm not here to judge or condemn anyone that has a lot. God has blessed some of you in remarkable ways. And hopefully out of that comes generosity in larger proportions than maybe others. So it's not that. But it's saying I really don't need everything. I need to be content. One of the things that's key is to keep your spending under control. One author said income will never keep up with uncontrolled spending. Did you hear that? Income, whatever income you earn will never keep up with uncontrolled spending. You have to stop and control your spending. I went back in my notebooks. To a, I found a message on this very passage, but I didn't use it. I wanted to revise it, but I came across some helpful strategies for, for contentment. And these came from a lot of different sources. These are not necessarily mine. Number one, look down the ladder. Quote, an, an erroneous measure of contentment is the prosperity ladder. Most of us look up the ladder and notice that the wealthy have more than we do. We need to look down the ladder. Our gratitude will increase when we see the opportunity, excuse me, through contentment, our gratitude will increase and we will see opportunities for sharing. My girls, when they were in, in their teens, Tricia and Tracy, let's just lay it, on the, lay it out there. They had to share a room. Now talk about a hardship. A lot of their friends didn't have to share a room. And so they really were you know, they, they weren't happy about having to share a room. And I had built a room addition in our home, and it was wonderful. They were so lucky to have that. But I'll tell you, they went to Mexico on one of our missions pastor. By the way, be nice to Kevin. Have we talked about Kevin already? I've said this many times because the future missionaries are sitting over there with Kevin and, and with Tim. Some of your kids, he's going to weave that into the fabric of their hearts to be missionaries. That's what happened with my kids. They went to Mexico. After they went to Mexico the first time, spent an Easter week of vacation ministry in Mexico, they came home and said, we will never complain again about having to share a room. Changed their whole perspective. And little did we know they would become missionaries, career missionaries, and marry good men who wanted to be missionaries as well. Another quote said, change your desires. If you want to make a man happy or content, add not to his possessions, but rather take away from his desires. Don't add to his possessions, but rather reduce his desires. Two key components, two principles. God comes first and people second. And possessions are not to be used, excuse me, possessions are to be used, not loved. Did you hear that? Possessions are to be used, not loved. Another quote was, we need a theology of enough. <laughs> One author said, I have not seen that preached lately. No formula exists for finding contentment except obedience, another author said. So here are some specific steps. Turn off the ads, turn out the lies. Set standards for your contentment by using the scriptures, by following the Bible. Develop a counter habits. Instead of getting, try giving. 
Instead of replacing, try preserving. Instead of feeling, let's see, I can't read my mind. Oh, instead of feeling covetous, try feeling grateful. Subtract from your needs. Make a list of all that you think you need and then try starting to cross things off. Divorce yourself from thinking from society and do what God says, to be content. Not content if, but to be content. Now, I, I don't... Susan and I go for a walk almost every morning. And, uh, and we walk through our neighborhood and we pray for our kids and our grandkids. We pray for some of our older people here in our church when we know there's need. We, there's always needs. But one of the things we've noticed is there are a lot of Teslas in our neighborhood. <laughs> Does anybody know what a Tesla is? Don't raise your hand. I think there's more per capita in our neighborhood than maybe in the entire state and certainly in the entire country. I mean, there, we just we keep counting. There's, a new te- there's another new Tesla. And I have nothing about, bad about Tesla. I'm fascinated with the guy who builds them and builds the, the X, uh, SpaceX and get those things in the, you know, pretty amazing. And I'd love to drive by a gas station, not have to stop. Wouldn't that be fun? But, but, right now I have two cars that work. I, in fact, I brought the mileage for you. I have a 2012 Camry, bought brand new, has over 100,000 miles and running well. Do I need a Tesla? No. And then I have a Highlander that we bought used from its original owner, and it has 180,000 miles. And it's still going. Do I need a Tesla? No. Maybe someday if one of those cars breaks, I might consider it. But do you understand? In fact, it's even worse than that because on both sides of us, the people to our left as you look out our door and the people to our right own Teslas. I can feel the pressure building. It's like, if we're going to look like the neighbors, we've got to buy a Tesla. Crazy. All right. We talked about contentment. Let's talk about being consistent. I believe part of generosity is being consistent. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a regular thing. Let's look at Philippians again. What are we at? In verse 14, Paul says, Nevertheless, even though he's content, nevertheless you have done well sharing with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed, from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you. So when Paul left Philippi and went on down the road to Thessalonica and to Berea and pursued and, and, and harassed by op, uh, opposition, people that were unhappy about this gospel that he's preaching, the Philippians sent help to supply his needs. He goes on even in Thessalonica, he says in verse, six, uh, verse 16, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And not that I seek the gift itself, I'd rather I seek the profit that increases to your account. Now, I'm not an accountant, but I do believe the Bible talks about placing treasures in heaven, storing treasures in heaven. I think there's something that goes on in an accounting sense that when we give, God honors that. He's pleased with that. And something is credited to our account in heaven. He says in verse 18, I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus, he was the Amazon or the UPS driver. I've received what what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul saw these as, as, as a gift. That, that they were more than a gift. They were an offering to God that they sent to him. Let me give you some examples. Um, I, I, first of all, you need, in my opinion, you need to uh, uh, be consistent in how you give a, back a portion of your, of, of your resources, income. Um, And first, and I wrote this in my notes, you should support the local church first. Are you supporting this church with your finances? I'm not here to, uh, Pastor Tim didn't ask me to say this at all. We we didn't really compare notes. But I I, I just think that's what we ought to do. And your giving can be in proportion to your income. When we were had two incomes at my house, 
In my family, we were able to give more. But when we retired, our income diminished, and so we gave less. I don't think it was displeasing to God. It's proportionate. And uh, th- th- so it may go up, it may go down in your giving. There was a family in this church many, many years ago, successful, were well, doing well, they had their own business. And when I preached this, maybe in 1999, and said that I think you need to give to your church first to be a part of that, expresses your commitment and all of that, they invited me to their home and shared with me, Pastor, we give away a lot of money, but we don't give any to the church. What should we do? And then they actually had a written out list they wanted to show me of all the things, all the places they were giving money. I mean, good things, Christian organizations like Samaritan's Purse and, and you know, many different groups that are doing good things around the world. Missionaries, they were very generous in helping missionaries, and I like missionaries. But I didn't look at the list. I didn't want to see how much money they were giving. That's between them and the Lord. And I don't have a clue what you give to this church. And you shouldn't know what I give. It's, it's, you understand it's a, one accountant has to keep track. But it's, it's a private, personal sacrifice that we give to the Lord. But they, they were asking me, how do they get started? How do they rebalance this? Didn't mean they wanted to stop giving to other ministries, but begin to rebalance over a few years where this church would be also a recipient. I like checks, by the way. I know nobody uses them anymore, but I used to bring a check every Sunday. I'd write out four checks for the month and bring a check every Sunday to church. I just think that was what we should do. Uh, It's kind of just bringing our little offering. And now there's only one little tiny box back there. Everybody's giving online. That's okay. But I'm just saying, do you see the, the image of that? We're bringing a gift onto the Lord. In addition to supporting the church, I do recommend you support individual missionaries. Do you understand, in, in this church, we set aside 13 cents of every dollar, 13%, that is, goes to a missions fund. I didn't tell First Service that. But this, this church is very generous and supporting. We give over $100,000 a year to support missionaries and mission work around the world. See, you're a generous church. This isn't a criticism. I want you to be aware of that. But in addition, there's something about supporting a missionary personally. You become buddies. You become connected. And when I was a young seminary student, Jeannie and I had very little income, but we gave $10 a month to support a missionary I had met at a Christian camp. His name was Ron Blue, my hero, just a remarkable man, Ron and Libby Blue. They went to Central America. They went to Spain. He was our camp speaker one year, just on and on. It's good to support other ministries and other organizations, but church first. And, and also, you can give extravagantly. You can give individually, you can give extravagantly, give over and above your regular giving. Do you know all these buildings are paid for? All of them. Nobody, we don't owe a penny. And we're about to, we have a, a fund, I think it was got seven, 800,000 in it that you've given to help us start on the remodeling of the education building. We call it the Ed Building because Ed Shockley built that building. He just showed us how to help him, but he was the man. But to understand to do that, and we did borrow a million dollars to build this building. We raised a million, borrowed a million. But people gave over and above. We had heart to build, heart to reach, heart. We kept giving a heart. But we had these building campaigns. And people gave above their regular giving. So that you sit here today and we don't owe a nickel. You see, we are the stewards. We have been blessed by the generosity of those who've come before us. And hopefully, we will be those who are generous that the next generation will benefit from. This church also raised $650,000 to start a new church and help buy property in Eastvale, California. And today, Vantage Point is thriving. And most of us that gave that money never went there. Some of our kids and grandkids did. They have, in turn, have started a new church out in Redlands. We talked about that. In other words, you can give extravagantly, over and above. Oh, I didn't tell this in first service. I'll tell you, I want to know somebody that was generous are my neighbors across the street, and they do not come to this church. They're wonderful people, but they had a car. They bought a new car, probably a Tesla. I better check. (laughs) But they bought a new car, and they were going to give their old car away. It was a Camry. You know, God made Camrys. They're good cars. (laughs) Just like the one that I own. And and they were going to give it to one of these things on the radio just to, you know, just give it away. We weren't going to sell it. But, but I didn't tell this story in first service either. I better not get too far here. One day, true story, in the grocery store, saw two widows from our church. 
And they are two real peas in a pod. They're just delightful. I did the services for both their husbands many years ago. But they were shopping together because one of their cars had died. And sadly, they didn't understand you have to put fluid in the radiator. And so they had ruined an engine. And it wasn't there. You know, it's just a slow leak, and they didn't know to check it. Widow. I mean, the day before, the neighbor said, we're going to give our car away. And the next day, I'm at the grocery store and meet a widow who needs a car. <laughs> I mean, it was just a, it just was a God thing. And so I went to my neighbor and said, have you already signed papers? Are you giving that car to that organization? No, they hadn't. I said, would you consider giving that car to a widow in our church? Oh, they were delighted. I mean, a lot more fun to give it to someone that they would know. And, and then the widow, she said, well, can I test drive it first? <laughs> I said, absolutely. And they were thrilled to meet her, and she was thrilled to meet them. And, and it's just, just such a precious story. And now she has a mechanic who checks it regularly. And, and it's, I mean, it's an old car with over 100,000 miles, but it works and blessed her life. She has a car. Generosity. How did we get off on all that? Oh, some other things. Um, we talked about giving, oh, give wisely. Uh, don't, don't, uh, oh, wisely. Use, use the tax laws to give out of your, uh, RMD, you know what that's required minimum distribution? Us retirees, we know that term, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have to, those IRAs have to be, but you can give out of that and reduce your taxable income. Did you get that? Talk to your tax advisor, he'll explain it. Um, don't give emotionally. Don't give emotionally. Talk to your spouse first. I could tell you some horror stories. Someone made a, a large donation without asking their spouse. Give wisely, give sacrificially. When we were first married in, at uh, Dallas Seminary, do you know how much money we spent on groceries in 1971? Anybody remember 1971? How much do you think we spent on groceries in a week? $15. That was groceries. Because you take away all these zeros that we've got now and you're back to the pennies instead of the dollars. And Jeannie came home one day and said, there's a couple, they, they're here on, a, a, finished his military service, and now they have a GI Bill, and they haven't gotten their money yet, to, for, and they need some money. She had heard this through the Women's Bible Study Network. So we took our little $15 envelope. Remember the days you used envelopes to budget your money? Hello, anybody out there? <laughs> and we, but not, we didn't put a name on it. We just together went down, put that in the mailbox, at the campus mailbox, anonymously. And it felt so good to do that. But then we're looking at it, you're like, okay, what are we going to eat this week? <laughs> but you know, about within a week, a check came for us for two or three times that amount. Because that's what God does. He loves to supply our needs when we have the faith to help others. Isn't that the way it works? We have a couple of, do we have a couple of slides that I get too far here? There are several that remind us that our giving are like offerings, sacrificial offerings. Can you guys show those? What did it start with in, here in Romans 12.1? Look at the language here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here's giving our bodies as an expression of our worship of God. What's the next one? Ephesians 5.2 Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us as an, here it is, offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. See these Old Testament images, how they brought those offerings? What's the third one? Here in Hebrews chapter 13, through him, that's through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God with our lips. That's the fruit of, of, of uh, our praise, his name. And don't neglect in doing good with our hands and sharing with our resources. With these, with these, for with such, what's the word? Sacrifices. God is pleased. I could go on and on. I won't. Let's see. What I want to do. Oh, I don't tell you about ping golf, but we'll not do that. So we've talked about generosity. First is content. Second is consistent. Third is confident. Let's look at verse 19, the last verse. And don't let me forget communion. Tim asked me to lead communion. 
Paul says because of your generosity and because of your heart and your faith and your sacrifice and these, these gifts that were like a fragrant aroma, like an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. He says, verse 19, my God will supply all, not just some, all of your needs, not once, but he will supply all your needs according to the, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So when you give generously, you can be confident that God is going to provide your needs as well. Some of the other ways I didn't mention about being generous, generous with your time. Give your time. And by the way, young dads, we've got some dads in here. Guard your evenings. One of the dumbest things I did as a young father would be out evenings because people needed to see the pastor. And I had a precious wife who kept this family going while I was out at night, too many nights. Guard your evenings with your kids. Protect your schedule from all these sports and special programs. Encourage your wife. Help with the kids. No one works harder than a mother with little kids. Those are famous Hopper quotes. By the way, take advantage of the nursery. Good for you guys. It's really fun to see this nursery in operation again. And the kids will do fine. They'll cry. My wife used to call it a courtesy cry. When you leave and when you come back, they cry. But most of the time, they're happy. They're getting treats, they're snacks. And you get to come in here and sit and relax. And you do take a turn, right? You, everybody's got to help one, maybe one Sunday or one service, one Sunday a month. Can't do it without you. Anyways, take advantage of that. Enjoy. And, oh, by the way, prep your kids for church. Have you had trouble with kids going to, to church? You do it on Saturday. Pick out the shirt. Hey, we're going tomorrow. Do you want to wear the red one or the blue one? I learned this from Linda McCubbin years ago. Prep them. Prep the kids on Saturday that we're going to church on Sunday. It's going to be fun, and we're going to see your friends, and your teacher's going to be there. They're going to have green crackers. You're going to love it. That'll do it every time. I shared this in first service. How do we know God is at work today? You ought to know these by heart. If you haven't written them down, you need to write them down. It's not me. It's in the Bible, especially Ezra. I saw these in Ezra. How do we know God's still working today? Well, one way is when he answers prayer. Not always answer them the way we want, not always in the time we want, but he answers prayer. Second, protection. God protects us. I have a hunch we get to heaven, we're going to be amazed at how many times there were close calls on the freeway, around a lake, doing something we shouldn't be doing, and he protected us. Third, people changed. Probably the greatest evidence of God at work are changed people. I shared this in first service without permission. But I did a service for a man named Charles Biller about several months ago now, Bruce's dad. I didn't know him very well, but I liked him because he was a pastor. I like pastors. We like each other. And we had similar backgrounds, building churches with our hands. And Chuck, Charles Biller was just not perfect. I mean, not at all. In fact, he had this crazy growing up in, in his life. And then one night came to faith in Christ. And it turned his world upside down from a fighter who was always into fights and all kinds of things to a man of faith for how many decades as a pastor? God loves to change lives. But the fourth way we know God works, not just prayer, not just protection, not just people, but he provides for our needs. He provides for our needs. Um, a lot of these stories, and there's so many more, and I just share this with you, are in my books. I finished two books, and I'm working on a third that I hope is going to be ready this month. And if you don't have one, you need one, not because I wrote them, but it'll just encourage your heart. They're just three-minute reads once a day for a whole year. There's a little piece of paper out on a patio about pre-ordering. If you want to get a book for Christmas, but here's the rule. You can't get just one. You've got to get two because you need to give one to somebody else. I met a woman at the opening of that Redlands church. Did I tell you this? And uh, she came up to me after the service. I didn't even speak. They didn't let me speak. I talked too long. But the pastor did a great job. But they introduced me and Mark and Tom from the Vantage Point Church. But she said, I've read your book. It's the first time I've ever met a stranger that's read my book. <laughs> and she liked it. She said, oh, I was so excited. I'd meet you personally. I felt like a celebrity. <laughs> she didn't ask my autograph, though, but... I mean this sincerely. These books are written. Not, I don't make money on the books. I love to give them away. I gave one away to the man from the water department who came to fix my leak a few weeks ago. I just sensed the Lord saying, hop, give him a book. 
let him, and, and, and then I met a young man. Well, we, we could go on and on, but there's opportunity. So if you buy a book, you can get one for the list price, but you can get two for like a $10 discount. If you want, just sign it over there. What I wanted to say was this. God is in the business of, of providing for our needs. Um, and, and he loves to do that. He loves to do that in our lives. And one of the books you'll see, one of, I think the first book I wrote, was one of my favorite stories. When we were in seminary, my wife worked full-time, I studied full-time, but then when we had our son, Tim, in 1974, she gave up her teaching job and became a full-time mom. We had very little money. When Tim, Tim was born, we did have health insurance, but it had a 20% deductible. Does that sound familiar? Especially in the old days, it had the big deductibles. So the deal was that at the hospital, you could work out a payment plan for the, the balance that remained. So some of you have heard this story. We went on, Tim was born on a Monday. He was sick, had a couple of days. I took him home on Friday. I went to the pay office. What do you call that? Were you accounting? And uh, I said, I'm here to set up a plan, pay the balance, whatever it is for our son over the next couple of years, I suppose. So the lady went, no computers in 1974. So she files through this file card and she comes back and she says, well, Mr. Hopper, you have a zero balance. And I said, what? I knew it only was 80% covered. She said, I said, you better go back and check again. She did. She came back and said, you owe nothing. And what had happened was someone unknown to us had paid the balance of our bill. I still feel that there. Doesn't, doesn't that touch you? And we don't know who. We suspect a few people. We didn't know any of you then, but we suspect some people who had kids in our high school ministry and who loved on us because we loved on their kids. But we'll never know until we get to heaven. See, that's what God loves to do. He loves to, to provide our needs in ways we could never, ever, ever envision or suspect. Well, we need to stop. We're going to do communion. I'm sorry we've run over. But let me just challenge you now. What do we say about generosity? You are a generous church. So this isn't a, a criticism. It's just a challenge. Learn how to be content. Learn how to give consistently and extravagantly and sacrificially, all those things. And then learn to be confident that this God of the universe, who knows us by name, will provide our needs. Especially, he loves to do that, to remind us, to remind us as we step out in faith and give to him. I'm going to close in prayer and then invite you to get the elements and we'll take communion together. But let's pray. Father, as we conclude this time, it's so fun to share, and there's endless numbers of stories that could be told. But we know you love us. We see that in your word. We see that in our lives. Your hand of protecting and providing, and hearing our prayers, and, and uh, just changing lives of people. Lord, you're, you're there, real, in this life right now. But uh, Father, I pray as we transition to communion, as we come together to celebrate uh, remembering the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And we have a little, a little wafer that reminds us of Christ's body nailed to the cross and a little cup that we drink from as a reminder of his blood that was shed for us and for our sins. So we come together as a thankful people and uh, ask you to bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.